Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, if you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1190 in that Bible. We are continuing our series that we've called Exploring Hell, which we'll be wrapping up next week and taking some time just to dig into what does the Bible say about hell. And, uh, and we all have tough questions about hell. This is not an easy area of discussion. And so we wanted to take some time to really explore it, as the title suggests, and dig into it. Uh, and I appreciate everybody's grace and everybody's patience as we do that. This is not an easy area. Not all Christians agree about this area. And so we wanted to dig into what does the Bible actually say. And uh, a couple of you have said to me, me, uh, as we've gone through the first two weeks, have said, uh, you know, Chris, I know you said you were nervous about this series, but, uh, but I think it's going great. And I said, okay, just wait, because we're not there to the tough stuff yet. And this week and next week are going to be the more challenging weeks, because up until this week, we've basically been just exploring uh, what we've called the classic view of hell. And that's something that if you've grown up in church, most of us have grown up with and we have been taught. Uh, we might not even be aware that any other Christians believe differently about it. But this week and next week, we are going to start to explore uh, other ways that Christians have looked at hell and the way some Christians do look at hell. And what we're really trying to do is, uh, again, what does the Bible say? And, and let's give a fair look at each one. And so last week, we tried to give a fair look at the classic view of hell. Uh, this week, we're going to try and give a fair look at what we call the annihilationist view of hell. Next week, we're going to try and give a fair look at the universalist view of hell, and we'll explain what those things mean as we go through. Um, each argument has pros and cons. None of the arguments are flawless. Uh, all the arguments have some scripture that they point to. Um, all of the arguments have questions and problems that they raise, and we cannot possibly, uh, in kind of three 30-hour, 30-hour, yeah, right, 30-minute uh, sermon. I wish I had 30 hours to really dig in, but in three 30-minute sermons, we cannot possibly flesh these things out to the fullest. And so part of this is just to get you thinking and encourage you to do some of your own research and dig into Scripture by yourself uh, and take some time to wrestle through this on your own. Uh, we would say this anytime that if you ever miss a Sunday, uh, you can always catch up online. We have our audio sermons online. We now have video sermons online. We have our podcast that records these things, and so you can catch up very easily. But especially for this series, these four sermons uh, really all kind of connect together. And if you only get one and miss the next two because you're on holidays or whatever, it just might be a bit tricky to kind of understand the fullness of it. So we would encourage you to catch up. So last week, we took time to explore what we called the classic view of hell, which is that hell is a place of what the theologians call eternal conscious torment. Hell is a place. It lasts forever. We are awake and alert throughout all of it and it is a place of torment. It's a place of torture, of punishment. It is a place where we pay for our sins and are visited by the anger and wrath of God for all eternity. And if you have grown up in church, this is almost certainly what you were taught. It's almost certainly, uh, depending maybe on the denomination you were raised in, but it was almost certainly 
uh, just kind of the mainstream classic view of hell. Even people who don't go to church are familiar with this, that hell is, uh, you know, that place of fire where you burn for all eternity. And so we took time last week to look at uh, where does that view come from? What are the scriptures that support that view? What are some of the tough questions that that view raises? And to wrestle through some of, some of that. But there are other views, which I have been teasing throughout the series, and we'll explore one of them today. And it's not because, the reason these other views exist uh, is not necessarily just because people don't like this or, or find it too emotional or find it too hard to get their heads around. There are, are sincere, Bible-believing Christians who love Jesus who have looked to the Scripture and come to a different conclusion. And so as we go through this week and next week, we'll be looking at what those conclusions are. We're not necessarily endorsing what we say this week and next week, but we are presenting it again, just trying to present it in a fair way. But when it comes to the classic view of hell, that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, there are those who have also read their Bibles and revere the scripture and say, okay, well, the Bible says God is love. And, and if that is his nature, uh, how do we reconcile God is love with this? Because even if we say, uh, well, it's a just love and it's a holy love and God has to, to be consistent with that, the idea of eternal conscious torment is just hard to reconcile those two things together. To believe in this place as we do if we hold to the classic view is to believe, and I'm not going to do anything stupid here, but as this candle is burning here, like it's starting to hurt now. And the closer I get, yeah, that's, that's pretty painful right there. If I hold it here too long, it's going to start to blister. It's going to start to burn. And that's just, you know, whatever, six or eight inches from the flame. And so the eternal conscious torment view that God would put my whole being into this for all eternity, the God who calls himself love, the God who reveals himself closest in Jesus and most clearly in Jesus, who said, love your enemies, be willing to die for your enemies. And Jesus, who not only taught that, lived that, that while we were his enemies, he laid his life down for us at the cross. The, the same God who taught and lived that would come and bring us to this place that's hard to reconcile. And so there are those who have looked at scripture and come to different Conclusion. Psalm 103, verses 8 and 9 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. So if God doesn't harbor his anger forever, then how can hell exist in the classic view, where we are punished forever? So these are the types of tough questions, and honestly, what I'm going to be doing today, if we like the classic view of hell, is I'm just going to step all over it, just to be honest with you. And we're going to ask some tough questions, and we're going to look at some scriptures, and we are going to just start to wrestle through some of this stuff. So let's take a look at our text today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we touched on this verse last week already. Page 1190 in the Pew Bible, and we're starting in verse 3. The Apostle Paul is writing. He says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Uh, that's a pretty good picture of Christian maturity right there. Your faith is growing and your love is growing. Paul is pleased with this as a spiritual dad looking at his kids. 
Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Just pause. So not everything will be set right in this lifetime necessarily, but in the end, all things will be set right. Verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So we touched on that, this verse last week, uh, and it's a verse that people who believe in classic hell would point to, this idea of everlasting destruction. But um, as we go through a different view this week and a different view next week, just as a reminder, uh, there are areas of the faith that we call disputable matters. And there are areas of the faith that we would call core matters. And so when we're talking about core matters, we're talking about who is Jesus, uh, what role does Scripture play, how do we get to heaven, how are we saved. We are talking about there are things that in Orthodox Christianity uh, have generally not been disputed. We're all on the same page. No matter what denomination you are or what background, they believe these core things together. So we are not fighting about uh, whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. That's a core matter. We're not fighting about whether Jesus is the way to heaven. That's a core matter. It's indisputable if you believe in the Bible. But then there are areas where the Bible is less clear. And Paul says in Romans 14 that when it comes to those types of matters where the Bible is less clear, love is more important than being right. And so we can agree to disagree on certain things, on certain matters of the faith, not the core things, but in lesser important matters of the faith that are less clear in Scripture, we extend grace to one another, even if we disagree. And as I've been researching this topic, it's been fascinating to me that for the first few hundred years of church history, there was a wide difference of opinion on the nature of hell. Everybody agreed that it was real. Everybody agreed that it was a place of punishment. Everybody agreed that Jesus came to save us from that place. But some believed that it was a place of eternal torment, and some believed it was a place of temporary torment, and some believed that it was a place of kind of purifying after which everybody would be saved. And even though they disagreed very sincerely, and nobody said, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, they sincerely argued and wrestled and fought about it. No one was saying, you're a heretic if you disagree with me on this particular point. And so the view we're looking at today is called annihilationism, and uh, where the classic view is the view that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, annihilationism is the view that hell is a place of temporary conscious torment, after which the person is destroyed. Hell becomes a place of destruction, not eternal torment. If I were to hold a piece of paper to this flame, it would experience the torture of the flame for a moment, and then it would be eliminated. And so in this view, hell is a place of destruction. And when you look it up online, uh, there are a lot of people who don't believe this is a disputable matter. If you type in annihilationism, you know how Google tries to kind of finish your thought? And so it'll say annihilationism, and it would say, you know, scripture, theology, heresy, like number three. And... 
it doesn't fall in the category of heresy because there is scripture that they point to that is solid. You don't have to agree with it, but you can't say that they don't have Bible behind them. Heresy is a term that we reserve for things that are clearly out of step with what the Bible clearly says. And this doesn't fall in that category. And so if you know people, or maybe even if you yourself are falling into this viewpoint, uh, and others who hold the classic view disagree, we can disagree. And we don't lob those bombs of heresy at each other over it. So as we go through this, uh, we're going to look at some of the scripture that annihilationists believe. So this idea is God still punishes sin. God still takes sin seriously. God still pours out his anger on sin, but it is not for all eternity. And I don't know what the timeline is. Nobody really knows that. But there will be a time of being paid, of paying for your sins in the, the punishment, in the fire or whatever. And then after that, uh, you'll be snuffed out. There will just be like a log on the fire, it will burn, and then the log ceases to exist after a time. And so this idea that that's what God is, is doing, and that's how God is dealing with evil in the world. So some of the classic view that we looked at last week really puts a lot of weight on this idea uh, that the soul is immortal. We talked about this last week, that we are made uh, with an immortal soul. Our body may die, but our soul lives on eternally. And because our soul lives on eternally, it has to go somewhere when we die. And so if we have followed Jesus, we will follow him into eternity. Our soul will go there. If we have not, our soul's got to go somewhere. And so hell is what's left. And Jesus came to save us from that place. And so the soul is immortal and it has to exist. Uh, and so like a rock, if you put a rock in a fire, it's going to stay there forever, right? The rock is not going to be wiped out. And so the soul is eternal, immortal, and the soul has to go somewhere when our body perishes. And so hell makes sense then because our immortal soul will last for all eternity in hell being immortal. But the question that annihilationists raise is, uh, why do we believe that? Why do we believe the soul is immortal? Does the Bible actually teach that? Uh, the idea started before the New Testament came around, and it came from the Greeks. It came from Plato. Uh, the Greeks taught in their worldview of their pagan religion that the soul of man is immortal and imperishable. And Greek thought certainly dominated much of the world when the Bible was being written. But we actually don't really see anywhere in scripture that clearly says the soul on its own is immortal, that it is just inherently immortal. In fact, what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, it says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. That God is immortal, God lives forever. Apparently, God is the only one who lives forever. And so why do we think that the soul is just automatically immortal? We get this picture in Scripture all the way back to Eden when Adam and Eve sin and get banished from paradise. In Genesis chapter 3, 22 and 23, the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Man has entered into sin and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. 
So God says, now that sin and evil are a part of humanity, uh, God says we can't let humanity be immortal because then evil will be immortal forever. So we can't let them be immortal. So we're going to kick them out of the garden. We're going to cut them off from immortality. They're going to die now. Now the end is going to be death because of sin, because we just can't allow evil to exist forever. And so that's why Romans says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The consequence of sin is death. The, the end of the sin journey is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus offers eternal life. And so annihilationists would say, we're not automatically given eternal life. We're automatically destined for death. And death usually, in any context, means the end. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are all headed for death, but God can give us this gift that extends us into eternity. He gives us this gift that extends us there. And if we hold to the classic view, then our struggle is, you know, what we really believe when we believe the classic view is that eternal life is actually for everybody. But some of us will spend it in heaven and some of us will spend it in hell. But the, the annihilationists would push back on that. This shows up a couple of other places. John 17, 2 and 3, Jesus says, he's talking about God as Father, since you have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So to know Jesus and trust him and walk with him, this is eternal life. It's not automatically given to anybody. It is given to us by God as we trust and follow Jesus. Romans 2, 6, and 7 says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. So again, eternal life is not for everybody. And then finally, most famously, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so we're going to unpack this a little bit more as we go, but Death is the end for those of us who are sinners, and that's all of us. Death is the natural end of our sin. But Scripture paints a picture of God can step into that natural end and give us eternal life. We can become immortal as he gives us that gift, but no one is automatically immortal. In fact, everyone automatically is perishing. Everyone automatically is coming to the end, but eternal life can be extended. And so if we hold to the classic view, and this is where we're going to start stepping on your toes a little bit, we have to answer the questions, why does death not actually mean death? Because death usually speaks of finality. And so to hold to the classic view, we have to say, when the Bible says death, what it really means is life, actually, eternally in hell forever. And why do we believe that everyone is given eternal life, with some going to heaven and some going to hell? Because it seems like eternal life is something that God will enter into our life and grant us to extend our life. But again, if we hold to the classic view that you burn in hell forever, you're saying, well, actually, everybody's getting eternal life. It's just some are going to spend it with Jesus and some are going to spend it in hell. Are you with me so far? All right. There's another side of this as well. 
Annihilationists would believe hell is a place. It is a place of torment. It is a place that happens after life. Uh, it's not a metaphor. We're going to get into some of that next week because some people believe that. Uh, but hell is a place. It's a place where uh, you are sentenced if you have rejected the Lord. And it is a place where you will pay the price for your sins. But this idea that you are kind of snuffed out there, is there any biblical support? There are scriptures that annihilationists will point to. So Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And now is when I pull out that awesome pastor's joke where I say, I went to the original Greek, I looked up what destruction means, and it turns out what destruction means is destruction. Yeah, there's no quirky nuances or weird things there. Destroyed means to be wiped out like a paper in the flame. It's just not there anymore. If I destroy a building, the building's just gone. Uh, it's not rebuilt and gone again. Destruction means destruction. And that's not the only verse that annihilationists would point to. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 28. This is King James. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, the Lord, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell destroy the soul and body in hell. Not keep alive for all eternity in torture, but destroy, eliminate, wipe out. All right, interesting. Galatians 6, 8. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Again, the context is eternity. Uh, we will reap what we sow. We talked a bit about this last week. It is our choice. It is our life. Uh, we can reap destruction if we choose to go down that path. Destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Philippians 1, 27, 28. I know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. God's gift of salvation uh, will be at work here. Philippians 3, 19, talking about evil people. Their destiny is destruction. There's that word again. Their God is their stomach, which was an old-fashioned way of saying their desires. Their, their God is their desires. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. That word destruction is there again. 2 Peter 3, 7. But by the same word, talking about judgment day, the heavens and earth that exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There it is again. Book of James 4, 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Revelation eleven eighteen. The nations were angry, and your wrath, Lord, has come. The time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Talking about final judgment. And then there is our passage today from 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. And so annihilationists look at that verse and say, well, everlasting destruction doesn't mean, uh, you know, being destroyed over and over and over again. You can't destroy something over and over and over again. The word destruction means to end it. So it is a destruction that is everlasting. It is a destruction that lasts for eternity. It is a destruction that you don't come back from. 
And the Bible talks about in the New Testament that there is an everlasting redemption, an eternal redemption. And that doesn't mean that we're being redeemed over and over and over again. We believe we've been redeemed by Jesus, and that's it. It happened once. It lasts everlasting. It lasts for eternity. And so annihilationists would point to that and say, right, so we are destroyed. We are wiped out if we have rejected Jesus, and that will last for eternity. There's no coming back from that. So, how are we doing? We put those together, and you, I mean, you certainly can't say there's no scripture here, right? We had 10 verses last week that we looked at for the classic view. There are nine verses here that suggest destruction in hell as a possibility. So you can't say that there's no scripture behind it. Uh, and when Jesus says things like, you know, you, you can have your body and your soul destroyed in hell, uh, that's compelling, at least interesting, even if we like the classic view better. Uh, it's something we have to wrestle with. And so if we like the classic view, then we have to ask this question as well. Why do we believe that destruction actually means to be kept alive forever in torment? Why do we believe destruction doesn't actually mean destruction? Why do we believe uh, that destruction and death, when the Bible talks about those things, actually means life and actually means ongoing and actually means alive for all eternity? Uh, these are not easy questions, but it's there. So you say, now wait a minute, because last week we did look at 10 verses from the classic view, right? We looked at 10 that they point to, and you can't just ignore those, and you absolutely cannot. Uh, and so the annihilationists look at those 10 verses, and, and there may be others as well, but these are kind of the 10 classic, uh, classic hell verses. And annihilationists look at them and say, okay, so we have these verses that talk about hell as a place of destruction. Where does the Bible clearly actually say that we will be in hell tormented forever? Where does the Bible clearly say that? Because most annihilationists will grant that hell is eternal, the place is eternal, the fire is eternal. That's hard to deny biblically. But where does the Bible say, even if hell is eternal, that we will be in that hell fire forever? Where does it clearly say that? And so they start to look at this list. They say, Isaiah 66, the worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they say, okay, the fire won't be quenched. We acknowledge that. Uh, that passage in Isaiah talks about worms eating the dead bodies. So the bodies are dead, apparently, according to Isaiah. And so that one doesn't really support the idea that we burn in hell forever. Daniel 12, 2 and 3, others uh, will rise to shame and to everlasting contempt. And annihilationists would say, okay, well, the contempt is everlasting, like we would say Hitler's contempt is everlasting. He's not still here, but no one's, like, rehabilitating Hitler's character, right, at this point. The contempt is there forever. He will be known for, on this, in, on this earth and in eternity, he will suffer the contempt of being a monster. It doesn't say uh, that we will live forever in that contempt, and so, uh, so that doesn't really back it up. Matthew 25, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, the fire may be eternal. It doesn't actually say that we will be in that fire. Um, same with Mark chapter 9, hell where the fire never goes out. Okay, annihilationists would grant that the fire doesn't go out. doesn't say that we're going to be in that fire for all eternity. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, and 9, uh, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction. That's our passage from today. So interestingly, both classic view and annihilationist view will both hold to that same one. Uh, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction. Again, they would say uh, the destruction doesn't last forever, uh, but... I mean, the destruction 
doesn't go on forever, but it will be an end time. Uh, I've lost this mic. It's not working for me. And so 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 9 is what they would hold to. Jude 7, uh, an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire uh, and annihilation to say, well, punishment. It doesn't say punishing for all eternity. It says that there is a, a punishment, but not necessarily uh, that we are in that place all the time again. So there is a, a punishment there. It doesn't say that the punishing itself is eternal. Jude verse 13, the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Again, the darkness is there. It doesn't necessarily say we're in it forever. Getting to Revelation chapter 14, the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Here we go. Okay. Classic view. Right. So there is a verse that says we will be in that place forever and ever. Same with Revelation 20.10. The devil and his angels will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right. So for those of us who like the classic view, you say, okay, I'm not crazy. There was something in there. I did actually have some basis for believing that. And then Revelation 20, 14 and 15, the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the first death is when our bodies die here on earth. And then there is a second death, apparently. But again, the annihilationists would say, why does death not mean death? Why does death not mean the end? If you're thrown into the fire, that's your second death, and you are done. Just like if my body dies here on earth, I would be done. Uh, so it seemed to potentially support the annihilationists more than the classic view. And so they would take that one off as well. Um, and so, again, this is not easy stuff. And there is... Uh, a couple of verses there from Revelation. So if we are an annihilationist, we got to reckon with these verses because these verses do say the torment is there forever. Uh, we are in that torment forever. That certainly supports the classic view. And what annihilationists would say is those two verses are both from the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is a highly symbolic book. And so when you read through Revelation, there are dragons flying across the sky and monsters coming out of the sea and giant frogs leaping through the land and there are locusts that look like Roman cavalrymen. And so it's a highly symbolic book. It's a prophetic vision. And so at other prophetic visions and prophetic dreams, when Joseph is encountering Pharaoh and Pharaoh has a dream of, you know, seven cows coming up out of the river and eating up other cows, no one's thinking, well, that's literally, there's going to be cows eating cows, apparently. That's the world we live in now. But they say, no, that is symbolic. God is speaking symbolically. And the book of Revelation, we are, this is true regardless of our conversation today, uh, we are notoriously bad and inconsistent in our approach to the book of Revelation. This highly symbolic book, and we're really bad at just going, well, that's a symbol, that's a symbol, that's a symbol, that's a symbol, this one's literal, that's a symbol, that's a symbol, that's a symbol, this one's literal. Like, we're very inconsistent in how we approach it. And I remember when I was in Bible college, I was younger and just starting out, and we were having a conversation in a class about Revelation, and Revelation says that Jesus will come and he will reign for a thousand years. And the professor said, literal or symbolic? And everyone in the class said, literal, a literal thousand-year reign. And I said, symbolic, only because I think the great red dragon is symbolic, and I think the whore of Babylon is symbolic, and I think this, 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 basically all of it is symbolic. And so I just don't know how you decide, well, this one will take totally literally amidst all the symbolism. How do you pick and choose? And my professor ripped me to shreds in front of the whole class. Uh, he beat me down academically that day. Uh, but I still think I'm right 20 years later. Just FYI, I have not budged on my opinion on that. And so it has been said, and I believe that it is true, 
uh, we need to be careful about not building doctrine based solely on the book of Revelation, because it's a highly symbolic book. Now, Revelation says that Jesus will return, and we see that in multiple other places in the New Testament. Revelation says there will be a judgment day. We see that in multiple other places. Revelation says there will be trouble before the end. We see that in multiple other places. So Revelation can certainly be a part of our doctrine. But annihilationists would look at those two verses that say we are in hell in torment forever and ever if we reject Jesus. And annihilationists would just say, why is that literal when everything else is symbolic in this book? It's not that it's not true, but it's symbolic truth. And so um, we want to be consistent in how we approach Revelation. So in terms of the annihilationist view, we're just about done here. Uh, some pros and cons. First of all, uh, again, a good pro, if you like this viewpoint, is there is certainly scripture that points to it. Uh, again, you could never say it's an unbiblical view. You might not agree with it. You might not like their interpretation. You might not like that they like these scriptures better than the classic scriptures, or they lean that way. So you don't have to agree with it in any way. But you can certainly not say that there's not something there, that there is not some Bible that is solid and at least reasonable, even if you disagree with it. I would say this is a reasonable biblical view to come to. Uh, so it's got some scripture on its side. The other big thing that this view has going for it is that we've been talking through this series about the problem of hell uh, and, and just very big questions that the idea of eternal conscious torment brings up, and one of which the classic one, how could a loving and merciful God sentence people to eternal conscious torment? Again, God is love, and some people just say, really, this like, this is what love looks like, even if love is just and holy and pure, even if love has to deal with sin, like, this for all eternity, is that really love? That's one of the great questions that we wrestle with if we hold to the classic view. And this other question of how could God, whoops, can you back me up there, Mike? How could God, a just God allow people to be punished for all eternity for sins committed temporarily. So we sin for a hundred years here on earth. How does that justify an eternity of eternal conscious torment? That doesn't look like justice. That looks like overkill. And we answered some of those questions last week from the classic view. Annihilationists uh, don't have to answer these questions. These questions get dealt with in their viewpoint, which God is still just. God is still punishing sin. God is still holy. He is still taking sin seriously. God still can experience anger and wrath. He is doing that in hell, but it doesn't conflict with the love and mercy of God in the same way that the classic view does. So we say God in his justice will deal with sin in, in hell, but God whose anger does not last forever in his mercy will then end it, will then wipe you out. And that is his mercy. That is how evil gets removed from creation. And so the annihilationist view doesn't have to wrestle with this stuff in the same way. Uh, God will punish sins for a time, uh, but not for all eternity. And so this idea of how is that justice just gets eliminated. So annihilationists don't have nearly uh, an issue here at all, because for them, the love, the mercy, the justice, and holiness of God all work together in a, in a bit of an easier way, uh, just kind of philosophically. That God in his justice will deal with sin, but God in his mercy will not torture a person for all eternity. As we keep going, some of the challenges of this view, one is that there are these verses from Revelation that need to be dealt with, and I explained to you uh, how that 
uh, typically gets dealt with by annihilationists. You can decide whether you think that's fair or not. Now, if we like the classic view better, we need to deal with all of those destruction verses. We got to find something to do with them. So everybody's got to wrestle through some stuff. Uh, I told you none of these views uh, are flawless biblically. Everyone's going to have to wrestle with something as we try to figure this out. The other thing that's really challenging for annihilationists is uh, this idea of tradition, that uh, for the vast majority of church history, the classic view is the view. Uh, for the vast number of Christians around the world, across all denominations, uh, the classic view of hell is the view. And that's not necessarily the be-all and end-all, because for times in church history, the tradition has been God's okay with slavery, and that's how they read God's word. And, uh, you know, keeping all the races separate is a good thing, because they could pull a couple scriptures in God's word. And so uh, tradition is not the be-all and end-all, but we do put a lot of weight uh, in sort of orthodox Christianity, traditional, uh, typically kind of conservative Christianity. What have most Christians believed for the most amount of time? The classic view is is it. Uh, and so the annihilationists are fighting against that. But uh, as we weigh all this out, uh, and I know what I've done today is raise a bunch of questions and not necessarily answer them all, but this is something for us to, to just kind of wrestle through. And, and I would argue uh, that you don't need to have a perfect doctrine of hell uh, to be a solid Christian, to, to you know, be a leader, or anything like that. Uh, these are tough questions, and we are all going through them and wrestling through them together. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, we've already mentioned it, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And whether we think uh, that that death is in every way, like the annihilationist, that you get wiped out in hell, you are punished for your sins and then eliminated, or whether you believe in eternal conscious torment and, and that death is more symbolic here. Uh, either way, the solution is the same. Jesus came to save us from that end. Jesus came to save us from eternal conscious torment or to save us from being eliminated. Jesus came to bring us eternal life. Jesus came to bring us that gift. And the Bible says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And it's not just about saying the words, Jesus is Lord, but it is about living our life with Jesus as Lord and saying, I will submit to you as Lord, and I will follow you. And as we've been saying, as we follow him, we will follow him to eternity. Jesus came, and as we believe that God raised him from the dead, Jesus rises to life in order to bring us to life. Jesus brings us to this place of eternal life. He comes and he brings us there. And so if we like the classic view of hell, or if you like the annihilationist view of hell from a biblical standpoint as your teaching pastor, I actually don't mind which one of those two you land on. Because uh, I do think both have a, a solid biblical argument. But either way, Jesus is the solution. Either way, Jesus is the one who brings us to eternity with him. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. If there are questions, and there may be a couple, we have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca, and we are happy to engage. Uh, most weeks, someone sends in something. We do uh, get some traffic in this, and so please feel free to send those in. Uh, we might answer them next week as well, because we're not done the series yet. But um, I told you, this week and next week are a little tougher. They're a little trickier, uh, because we, whichever school of thought you land on, 
there are tough questions that we need to be able to answer. And again, in a 30-minute message, uh, I wasn't able to get to everything that I would have liked. I'd be happy to grab coffee or continue the conversation. But certainly encourage you, uh, look to the Bible yourself. Do your own research yourself. Be aware that the internet is not all good. Uh, not everything that's on there is solid. But look to the scriptures yourself and talk to people that you trust yourself. And certainly uh, be happy to keep talking about these things as we do that together. We're going to spend some time in worship. I've asked the worship team if we could sing that song forever again because this is the song of Jesus, the solution to wherever we land on what hell looks like. Jesus is the solution. And we want to celebrate what he has offered to us in eternal life. Would you stand to your feet with me, please, as we sing? team you can come forward um, just as we wrap up our service if you are needing prayer we have a team of people who have been trained and who are ready and available to pray with you this morning so I encourage you to come up um, and just pray with us if you are not wanting that this morning I just ask that you visit out in the lobby or in the cafe um, just down the hall there but as we wrap up our Sunday let's close in a word of prayer God may we be a people who understand the gravity of what you have done the lamb has overcome. God, you have beaten death and we have you so readily available to us. Lord, as we leave this place this morning, give us a desire and a hunger for your word. Lord, make us seek and search you. Search your scripture, God, to know what you are saying. God, may it not stop just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, Lord, that you would change our hearts and make us be a people who understand what you have done. So I ask for understanding, I ask for wisdom and discernment as we leave this place, Lord. Um, that you would just be honored and glorified in everything that we do. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Have a good Sunday, everyone.